Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today we're going to explore one of the most shocking and disturbing true crime cases in British history. The monster of Rillington Place. This unassuming terrace house in London was the site of unspeakable horrors that would shock the nation and lead to significant changes in the criminal justice system. For years, a seemingly normal couple lived inside this house. But behind closed doors, a series of brutal murders were being carried out. The true story of the monster of Rillington Place is one that's going to chill you to the bone and leave you questioning how such evil could exist in plain sight. So buckle up. This is a story you don't want to miss. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. If you're new here, the format of the show, one of my writers, this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Has written me a script, The Monster of Rillington Blaze, as you heard from that introduction. Get your bones ready to be chilled. Um, yeah, I don't know why I'm making fun. It's obviously going to be one of those episodes where I say, oh, this is a total horror show, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, with that said, I've not read this before. We're going to explore it together. Let's jump in. It begins with a quote. It is better that 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer. This is a quote from 1700s English jurist William Blackstone, and it rings as true today as it did back then. Injustice is a real thing, one that so many people face as they fight to clear their names and expose the truth. It's something that so many in the justice system, from cops to lawyers to judges, fight against every single day. However, corrupt investigations and wrongful convictions do still happen, and evil people still get away with their dark deeds all while hidden in the shadows. Yeah, this is one thing. Like uh, People are like, Simon, I can't believe how pro-death penalty you are. And don't get me wrong, like, when we do these episodes and someone has committed horrible crimes and we're, you know, it's like, bang to rights, they are guilty as sin. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of okay with them getting the death penalty if they've committed horrible, horrible, horrible crimes. But then <clears throat> when you zoom out and you're like, well, this is just one case where we know the person is guilty. What about the ones where we're not so sure or there's a miscarriage of justice or the police railroad someone or blah, 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 or all of the other dozens of potential ways that an innocent person can be executed. And this has happened before. So is it like, we go back to Blackstone's quote, is it better that 10 guilty people go free? I'm like, yeah, I subscribe to that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm not like fully into the death penalty, even though, you know, it seems like I am because I'm always like, hang him. But that's because we know they're a monster. When it comes down to the like, yeah, but what about the people who are not guilty? and they're getting sentenced to death. And then I'm like, is that worse than life in prison? And I don't know why that's a debate because for me, it's like, of course not. <laughs> I mean, wait, whatever way around it is, I think life in prison, if someone was like, do you want to go to life in prison or do you want to be executed? I'd be like, life in prison. I'm sure prison is horrible, but it's uh, it's not death, is it? There's probably going to be a few moments of fleeting joy in your prison sentence. Maybe it's just having a nice dream. Maybe it's uh, you know, recovering from a beating. <laughs> this kind of thing, you know? There's going to be moments of joy. There always is. It's amazing what humans get used to. 
With that said, Simon and dearest audience, let us hop in our time machine and discuss one of the worst miscarriages of justice in British legal history. The day was March the 9th, the year 1950. On that day, 25-year-old man Timothy Evans sat in a small stone room known to the guards and the inmates as the Condemned Suite. It was in Pentonville Prison in Barnsbury, North London. A thin mouse of a man, you'd never think he could have been responsible for the heartless murder of his wife Beryl and their infant daughter Geraldine. Ever since November of the previous year, Timothy had been a suspect in the disappearance of his family. He initially said it was an accident, only to later state that it was due to an abortion gone wrong. Well, that sounds like a, that sounds like an accident. Although I guess it's less, you know, it's less accidental because they were getting an abortion. I guess abortions weren't legal in the 1950s. However, when his home at 10 Rillington Place was thoroughly searched after his confession, the bodies of both Beryl and Geraldine Evans were discovered in the back garden, both strangled to death. The trial was a swift one, and in the end, Timothy was sentenced to hang. I know I know the 1950s was a long time ago, but it does. I think the last execution was in the 1960s. 1967 comes to mind. Hey Siri, when was the last execution in the UK? A few minutes later. Found some web results. I don't understand how Siri can be so How long is it before Siri stops sounding like Siri and starts sounding like one of those robots from Eleven Labs, which can just be anybody? You know, you could just have it sound like Joe Rogan if you wanted to. Although I'm not sure why you would. Um, you could have it sound like me. That would be better. <laughs> I'd like it to sound like me. That would be awesome. Um, and then just put ChatGPT in there. Because obviously it's going to, I mean, sometimes it'll just tell you straight up lies, but it probably would get that right, wouldn't it? Only three months after the verdict, his sentence was said to be carried out, his final appeal on the 20th being rejected. As his time came to an end, he was pushed into a small room, a noose hanging limply from the ceiling, and underneath it, a trap door. A no the noose was then forced over his neck, and a black hood was placed over his head as the lever fell under the executioner's grip. The floor opened up underneath Timothy, and as the rope snapped tight, a resounding crack filled the room, and the life faded from Timothy Evans, knowing that in the end, he was innocent of it all. You see, leading to his trial and even during the proceedings, Timothy had recanted his confession, saying that someone else had been responsible for killing his family. He claimed that he was being set up, that he was a scapegoat, but nobody would listen. He'd been manipulated into confessing on multiple occasions and the police, wanting to get the case resolved as quickly and neatly as possible, made sure that a guilty verdict was a guarantee. Well, I hope you can live with yourself, police. None of you are alive anymore. 1950s? I suppose you could still be alive. You could be 20, 1930, so you could be 90. Um, yeah, fuck you. And I know police like want to close cases and then they get railroaded on a particular suspect and it leads to miscarriages of justice. And f that, to be honest. I feel like you need to, each police station needs an anti-railroading person who's just like, are you sure? Are you sure? Is that a good idea? I can imagine it in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> There's just a dude whose desk is in the corner. And when they're like questioning a suspect, he's like, are you sure he's your guy? Are you 100% certain? I'm just checking. I'm just, you know, just, just, uh, oh, just a bit of a contrarian. <laughs> there should be that person. Because of this and the words of a man whose claims were taken as truth, Timothy's pleas fell on deaf ears as the judge and jury decided that his life was forfeit. So now it's time that we get into the story of the man who not only murdered Beryl and Geraldine Evans, but six other women on his path to destruction. And I suppose, like, in a roundabout way, he also murdered Timothy because he was responsible for his death. Pretty directly. A man who framed Timothy Evans for his crimes and was left smiling, knowing that someone else had gone to the gallows in his place. This is the story of one of the worst injustices in the history of criminal justice and one of the worst serial killers in the history of the UK. This is the story of the monster 
of Rillington Place. Timothy's Tale Timothy John Evans was born on November 20, 1924 in Wales. He and his sisters were raised by his mother and stepfather after his birth father had left them before Timothy was even born. When he was younger, Timothy had trouble in school, even learning to speak. It didn't help his case that when he was eight, he was in an accident and developed tuberculosis on the underside of his foot. <laughs> Wait, really? I thought, I guess it's a bacteria. Right, tuberculosis is a bacteria, right? It's not a virus. Yeah, it is a bacteria. I know this because now they can treat it with like antibiotics, right? Which they can't do for virus. I mean, antivirals, but it's not like antibiotics, is it? Um, anyway, how do you get on his foot? I thought it was like that breathing disease, like consumption where you're like... <laughs> Simon, don't make <laughs> Dude, are you making fun of people with tuberculosis right now? <laughs> don't do that. So somehow he got tuberculosis on his foot. Maybe someone coughed on it. I don't know. For clarification, tuberculosis of the skin isn't fatal. And apparently it's a thing uh, that can cause terribly painful sores and blisters on the infected area, which can take a lot of time to go away. Because of this, he was forced to miss even more school. This resulted in Timothy being stunted in his education, with his IQ later being determined to be between 60 and 70. Um, okay. <laughs> like, wait, though, isn't IQ like innate intelligence? I guess you do need some amount of education. But it's something that doesn't really change, right? And it doesn't matter. Like, you can be a bit of a dumb, like, you can never go to school or university and stuff, but you can still have like an IQ of 160 or something insane, right? It's like the processing power of the brain rather than the knowledge of the brain. I remember when I was a kid, my parents got like, they, I think I was just getting bad reports at school or whatever, and they thought I might be a bit dumb. <laughs> so they sent me to a, an assessment to make sure that I was smart. And I was smart, which was nice because, you know, being dumb is hard. This combination of low intelligence and his foot condition would plague him even after he left school. Shifting his attention to finding a good job in order to help out his family at home, he was willing to do just about anything. However, he lost nearly every job he had, either because of being unable to walk to work due to his foot, or because he was mentally incapable of doing the job. With World War II going on at the time, Timothy even tried to join the military, but was rejected due to his illiteracy and foot. <laughs> Timothy's like, World War II, finally a job for me! And everyone else would be like, man, I wish I had tuberculosis of the foot right now because wait i was gonna say the trenches but that was world war one uh the nazis okay that. at least with world war ii like world war one was so pointless it was just a bunch of treaties whereas world war ii at least you're like let's go up some nazis yes this soured Timothy's outlook on life. He felt like he truly didn't belong anywhere. He didn't feel like anyone respected him, so he started making up lies about himself, trying to boost his image in the eyes of those around him. Obviously, this did nothing for those who knew him well, but for those who didn't, they were taken in by his lies, enraptured by the stories of his grand adventures and unparalleled skills. To quote Timothy's own mother, he didn't have any real confidence in himself, and he had to lie to cover it up. Regardless, Timothy became addicted to all the attention and praise, thinking he could make anyone anything better through lies. However, a low IQ and bad luck didn't stop him from finding love. Can someone that dumb? Because, like, I, I mean, 60 to 70 is really intellectually challenged. Is that appropriate? Like, he's not, he's just a bit of a dumb dumb, okay? Like, he's not that bright. Because on the, a hundred's average. So for every person who's like, so the on the other side it's like what you've got an iq of 130 to 140 which is pretty wicked smart so uh, can you lie effectively being that dim by 1947 timothy was 23 years old and he and his family had moved from wales to london where he had landed a job as a delivery driver 
It was during one of his delivery reads that he met 18-year-old Beryl Susanna Thorley, and it was love at first sight. And not even a year later, they were happily married on the 20th of September 1947. Initially, they lived with Evans's family, and they were happy. This didn't last long, though, as in 1948, Beryl discovered that she was pregnant. And with that, they moved out of the Evans household and into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in Ladbroke Grove near Not in Notting Hill. Then, on October the 10th, 1948, little Geraldine Evans was born. So... With a lovely wife and a baby girl, you'd think that life was on the up and up for good old Timmy, yes? Well, actually, that wouldn't be the case. While initially happy, things started to go downhill fast. First off, the flat was tiny even for two people, and it was in a dangerous neighborhood. <laughs> Times have changed. Notting Hill is now nice. It didn't help that Beryl was a terrible housekeeper, letting her, their home get further and further into disarray while Timothy was out working. Oh, and it was just the two of them. The apartment was enough, and the money, while in short supply, was also enough. But when their daughter was born, things got even more difficult. And the small apartment got smaller, the money dried up quicker, and Timothy, despite trying to find as much work as possible, was unable to do so due to his foot injury and his lack of intelligence. <laughs> Harsh bats. He's like, he was unable to find more work because he was dim. <laughs> It sounds like a voiceover in a Wes Anderson film. Unfortunately, Timmy was unable to find more work because he was not very bright. <laughs> this forced them to take out large blank bank loans in order to get by and live their lives, their debt only getting worse and worse as time went on. All this hardship, all this stress impacted both Timothy and Beryl greatly, their marriage suffering as a result. They fought daily, yelling at each other over the smallest things, and the arguments between them were loud enough to be heard by the neighbors. At times, they grew physical with one another while arguing, which was also witnessed by their neighbors. It didn't help that even with their non-existent finances, Timothy took to drinking to alleviate his woes, which only made his temper worse. Things were going downhill fast, and it seemed like things were only going to get worse. A dark turn. Things were proverbially in the gutter, and the small family was desperately hanging on. The marriage was falling apart. Neither of them were happy, and they were doing what they could to make sure their daughter, Geraldine, was cared for. Then, in 1949, Beryl made the announcement that she was pregnant once more. While most of us would jump for joy at the thought of a new little one coming into our lives, all it did was bring panic and misery for Timothy and Beryl. They were barely making ends meet to begin with, and their flat wasn't even big enough for them and Geraldine. It was because of this that Beryl decided it was in their best interest to have an abortion. We now introduce a new character in this strange and dark game, a man by the name of John Christie. Living downstairs in the same building as Timothy, the two had become friends over time, and Christie told Timothy to stay strong and to keep looking for work, so that things would be all right. Except they wouldn't. On November the 30th, 1949, Timothy Evans walked into the police station and confessed to killing his wife, Beryl. He said that he'd gotten a bottle from somewhere that would abort the fetus, and he gave it to her. He then disposed of her body down a sewer drain outside 10 Rillington Place. Wait, so the bottle, whatever was in the bottle, killed her? Okay, and then he put her in a drain? How big was this drain? Timothy had gone to Wales, but not before making sure his daughter Geraldine was somewhere safe. However, when the police searched the sewers, no body was found. Additionally, it was unlikely that a sickly and disabled man like Timothy could have killed his wife and unborn child, lifted the manhole cover, and disposed of them himself. The police thought that as well, and decided to question Timothy again, and here's where things only get worse. 
Abortion has always been a controversial topic, and it was illegal in England at the time. Timothy initially opposed the idea, but he eventually agreed. He then turned to his friend John Christie for help in figuring out how to do it. Timothy confided in Christie about the situation, and Christie offered to take care of Beryl's abortion personally. After some consideration, Evans agreed to his idea. Timothy lied to protect Christie from the repercussions of attempting an illegal abortion, and he continued to do so even when the whole world was crashing down on top of him. On November the 8th, Timothy returned home to find Beryl and Geraldine gone. Christie informed him of the tragedy that had occurred during the abortion and that Beryl had passed away. So why did he go in and confess, like straight away? Christie promised to take care of the body himself and arranged for Geraldine to be taken care of by a loving couple in East Acton. He advised Timothy to leave London until everything died down, which Timothy did. He returned to Rillington Place later to ask about Geraldine. Christie refused to let him see her. After Timothy's second confession, the police conducted two searches of the garden area at Rillington Place. The first search didn't turn up much, despite the presence of a human thigh bone supporting a fence post in the tiny garden. <laughs> what the f man? <laughs> Whose thigh bone is that? However, the second search struck gold for the officers. The bodies of Beryl and Geraldine were discovered wrapped in a tablecloth in the wash house in the back garden. They had both been strangled. Bro. Wait, so... He admits to do killing them, then he admits that someone else killed them, and then their bodies are found in completely different circumstances to what was described by him and what happens. And did Christie do this? What is going on? It seems like Christie did this, and then he told Timothy to say something different, and Timothy's a bit dim, so he's like, okay, I'll say that. Um, that's my best guess so far. But this is very strange. When confronted with the news that his whole family was dead and that this whole time his little girl uh, was gone and he had been lied to, uh, what did Timothy do? Well, sadly, we know the answer already. He was asked if he had strangled his wife and child. Perhaps it was from shock or from some form of guilt. But in the end, Timothy did what he always did. He lied. Timothy said yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline failure of justice to say none of this makes any sense is an understatement a I minute mean, exactly it's like what is going on none of this ties together none of this makes any sense i'm like i'm lost and it's not because of the 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 telling of the story it's because the story is bizarre Despite Timothy's second statement, Christie was not brought in as a suspect, and Timothy was charged fully and solely with the death of his wife and child, while Christie was charged with nothing. What the f Get that Christie dude in there. He's dodgy as f Timothy's interrogation and the confession that came from it were embarrassing to say the least. The police kept him up all night, agitating him with questions and suggestions, and even handing him all the details of the case. Evans later stated that he feared violence if he didn't say what the police wanted him to say, and was kept in solitary confinement until he was handed over for trial. So essentially, they coerced him into a confession, which is, uh, well, that's brilliant police work, isn't it? This reads like something out of Victorian times rather than 1950s. 
Although that makes it sound like it doesn't happen today when obviously it does. It just feels like very old, doesn't it? The trial began on January the 11th, 1950, before a judge and jury, and the charge was solely for the murder of Geraldine Evans. Timothy wasn't charged for the death of Beryl, but her death was used as evidence towards the conclusion that he had murdered his daughter. Timothy was represented by Malcolm Morris, a prolific lawyer whose clients also included suspected serial killer John Bodkin Adams who, and rock legend Mick Jagger. Okay. Together with Timothy, they argued the defense that it wasn't Timothy that murdered his wife and daughter, but John Christie. Seems like a no-brainer, right? Given his second admission and the fact that Christie actually had previous convictions for serial theft and malicious wounding while Timothy's record was fairly clean, it seemed to scream that he was innocent of it all, except that none of that mattered. It was Christie's word against Timothy's, and Christie's reform into a proper member of society and his upstanding work as a special constable with the police seemed to speak to the judge and jury more than Timothy, a disabled and illiterate nobody who had well-documented physical fights with his wife. Um, wait, special constable is in the police right? So that seems like there's a little bit of corruption going on. Like, he's a fellow police officer. Um, okay. Also, can you be a police officer if you have a criminal record? Especially for, like, intent to malicious wounding or something. That's a proper crime. <laughs> oh, you can't be a police officer after that, surely. Or whatever the f*** a special constable is. Christie was a witness for the prosecution, as was his wife, Ethel, and Christie completely denied the claim that he had agreed to do an abortion on Beryl. Both Christies went into great detail about Timothy's violent behavior and his lack of remorse, painting a picture of a man who is not to be trusted. On top of that, the defense could find no motive for Christie to kill Beryl and Geraldine while well, uh, they still had the confessions from Timothy, and it seems uh, that's all they needed. It's here that I must give a quick shout-out to fellow Simon Whistler writer and good friend Liam. Oh, Liam also writes for Casual Criminalist. While talking to him about the case, he informed me of a rather revealing fact. In most countries, a confession, oh, Liam is a, is a lawyer. A confession is not enough for a conviction. You need at least some minor corroborating evidence first. Okay, so you need some evidence to go along with a conviction in other countries. But in England and Wales, a conviction solely on a confession is fully acceptable if a jury decides that the confession is compelling enough. Because of that, coupled with the damning testimony, a sadly lackluster defense, and the fact that there were a number of articles of evidence that were flat out concealed by the police and not shown to the jury, Timothy Evans's fate was sealed. This is the reason why you have to have other evidence, because of coerced confessions. Wow. Especially when a confession is uh, taken back or changed later, surely. England and Wales reform that shit. come on. The trial itself only lasted three days, and the jury took 40 minutes when reaching the verdict. Timothy Evans, 25 years old, was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death. And just like that, we're back at the start, with the resounding crack of a broken neck. Timothy Evans's life, coming to an unjust conclusion at the end of a noose, a black bag over his head, and knowing that he didn't deserve any of this. He might have had his problems, he had his misfortunes in life, but he was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He just wanted to fit in and have a good life. And in the end, he was framed and everything was taken from him. His life, last of all. That's a great sentence. Well done, Matt. And all the while, the true monster simply smiled and laughed from the shadows. His evil eyes hidden behind a pair of large, circular spectacles. So, is it Christy? Do we know it's him? Because Matt's kind of set this up as it's kind of, do we know who the monster is? Well, let's find out. Meet the Mastermind. John Reginald Halliday Christie. 
Okay, we're back to Christy. I guess he is the monster, maybe, allegedly, possibly. Oh, he's dead. It's eight. He was, I just see the next line. He was born in 1899. He's long dead. Known to his loved ones as Reg, was born in North Arum. Never heard of it. Near Halifax, in the West Riding area of Yorkshire. This was on April the 8th, 1899, the sixth of seven children. He would be coddled by his mother, bullied by his sisters, and his father was an unfeeling man would punish his children for the smallest and most meaningless of things. Christie also had a bad relationship with his grandfather, David Halliday, being frightened by the very sight of him. When David passed away in their house due to illness, though, it acted as a turning point for young John. When asked about it, he stated the fact that someone he was scared of was no more than a corpse gave him a sense of power and satisfaction. Oh my God. If you're, if someone dies and you feel a sense of satisfaction, check yourself. Okay, just be like, should I be feeling that way? Is that a good way to feel? I mean, I didn't like this person, but I am I satisfied that they're dead is a, I mean, I don't know. I felt pretty satisfied when I found out that Pedro Lopez was most likely dead. So maybe I'm that psycho. No, this was not the sign of a stable young boy, but a rather the beginning of a descent into darkness and depravity. Regarding his sisters, he very much hated them, but in a sick, depraved way, it was also them that had stimulated his sexual awakening. Okay. Reportedly, it was at the age of 10 that Christie saw one of his sister's bare legs and it aroused those feelings within his mind, clashing uh, with his stern hatred for her. According to author Ludovic Kennedy, uh, quote, there was nothing unusual in this, for it is often through their sisters that small boys first find themselves physically disturbed by the opposite sex. But in Christie's case, it exaggerated an already tense situation he had always resented his sisters bossing him about and now to add salt to his wounds he found himself physically attracted to them he both loved and hated them because they aroused his masculinity and then stifled it and this went on day after day month after month year after year there must have been many occasions when he thought of his grandfather and wished them all dead <laughs> it sounds very freudian doesn't it uh christy was branded reggie nodick and can't do it christy by his peers due to his chronic impotence since adolescence Oh my god. How do they know? <laughs> he was only able to perform in any capacity when it was with prostitutes. This, combined with the emotional familial turmoil which precipitated his sexual awakening, led to a deep seated hatred of women. The darkness was indeed at work. In September 1916, Christie enlisted in the British military and was called into action as an infantryman in 1917. He was then dispatched to France in 1918 only to be caught in a mustard gas attack in June 1919. Yeah, the First World War was so shitty. Plus also first chemical weapons, first like machine guns, uh, tanks. For, like, I think there's that fun fact or whatever that I'm not sure if it's true, but it is a good fact if it, if it is. Is that First World War was like people were still using horses but people were also just getting started with the first tanks. And it's like, oh no, modern and old warfare meet each other in a horribly brutal way, which leads to millions of deaths. Christie claimed that the gas had made him deaf and blind, but this has proven to be untrue. There was no official record of him going blind, and his inability to talk at the time has been attributed to a psychological reaction to the attack instead of the attack itself. Well, that's still part of the attack. It's PTSD or whatever. That's a real thing. He was demobilized from the army in October 1919 and joined the Royal Air Force in 1923, only to be discharged completely a year later in 1924. My great-grandfather was uh, in the Royal Air Force at this time uh, we had a sponsor of that i knew he was but my, called my heritage i found like pictures of him i found out about his bombing raids i was like that's that's cool he was a lieutenant there's a picture of him and he sort of looks like me i was like holy <laughs> between his stints in the military christy met and married ethel simpson at halifax's town registry office on may the 10th 1920 also interestingly this is happening in yorkshire right 
which is uh, where my grandmother grew up. So maybe they, maybe it was in Yorkshire as well. Maybe they knew each other. That'd be weird. Maybe they were mates. <laughs> Unfortunately, his issues towards the female sex remained and the marriage was further strained when Ethel suffered a miscarriage. It was during this time that Christie began having run-ins with the law and the dark seeds planted years ago started to bloom. Descent into Darkness Christie's first arrest happened when he was working as a postman and was caught stealing postal orders on February the 20th and March the 26th, receiving a three-month sentence in HM Prison, Manchester. Less than two years later, he was arrested for obtaining money on false pretenses and a violent conduct, to which he was given a year's probation. In 1924, he was arrested and convicted twice of larceny, getting sentenced to three and six months long sentences before being released from HM Prison Wandsworth. During this time, Christie and Ethel separated, with her moving to Sheffield and Christie moving to London. It is likely that Ethel had grown tired of Christie's criminal behavior. <laughs> Yeah, he's been in and out of jail. It's only been like a couple of years. He's mostly in jail. Then, after working as a lorry driver for two years, Christie escalated his hatred of women taking over him entirely. He had been living with a woman named Maud Cole at 6 Almerig Road in Battersea, South London. On May the 13th, 1929, Christie took a cricket bat and struck Maud over the head. She survived. Then he was arrested, charged with assault and murderous intent, and was sent once more to HM Prison Wandsworth for six months of hard labor. Oh, back in the day. <laughs> back in the day, and as they go to prison, it's not just sitting around. It's like, you're going to do some, you're going to build some roads or some sh That's right, attempted murder and only six months of physical work. Oh, yeah, I suppose that is very short. <laughs> What's going on? I'm having flashbacks of Robert Hansen here. Oh, my God, yeah. This was likely Christie's first attempt at murder, but he failed, and he could have been stopped then and there, but he wasn't. His last imprisonment was in November of 1933 for auto theft, for which he was only given a three-month sentence. What is going on, UK, of the past? These are It's attempted murder. And then he steals a car later and gets three months? Surely, given his criminal record, he should get more. He's obviously not reformed. He should still have been in prison for attempted murder. So I know what you must be thinking. Well, man, that sounds pretty damn bad. So how on earth was his word taken over Timothy's confession or not? Well, sadly, it's fairly simple. After his final imprisonment and release, Christie started to turn things around, renouncing his criminal ways. The first thing Christie did after his release was to mend things with his estranged wife, Ethel, in 1934. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, why were you in prison again? Oh, yeah, no, I took a cricket bat to my new girlfriend head. Should we get back together? No! No, Christy! God, God, no! Never, Christy! Get the f*** out of here! Jazz. <laughs> Despite all the stress he had caused her, she took him back, likely due to his charm as a psychopath. <laughs> However, that did not mean that Christy had truly changed his ways, as he still saw plenty of prostitutes and his impotence remained strong. Christy and his wife moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill. Later, he moved into the ground floor flat. Oh, okay, so he was living in the the apartment that Timothy moved into later, right? Because that was the top floor one as well. Some might say the penthouse at 10 Rillington Place. Now, it seems like a dump, so... No, just no. The flat was small and run down, but they did what they could to make it livable. To make ends meet, Christie applied for and was given a position with the War Reserve Police at the beginning of World War II, despite his criminal background. It's almost unbelievable that the police did not check into his background before allowing him to join their ranks, but that's exactly what happened. What the f***? He was in prison for attempted murder! And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure, you can be a copper. All right, join the beat. 
Perhaps the police job was just what Christie needed to add some much-needed stability to his life. However, he soon met another woman named Gladys Jones, who worked at the Harrow Road Police Station where Christie was stationed. The two of them started an affair that lasted until mid-1943, when Gladys's husband returned from the war and discovered that his wife was cheating on him. He arrived at the house and found Christie there, giving him the thrashing of a lifetime and sending him packing. Excellent. Now, that all sounds well and good, but it was the final embarrassment, the beating that he took, that seemed to flip the switch. This writer's honest opinion is that Christie felt he took the beating because of a woman, uh, the one thing that he hated on earth more than anything else. This was the final straw that pushed him over the edge, and he fully snapped. He might have attempted murder once before, but now nothing would stand in his way. The Monster, the Beast, a Rillington Place. Ruth First was a 21-year-old Austrian munitions worker who supplemented her income by occasionally engaging in prostitution. On August 23, 1943, she encountered John Christie in a snack bar in Ladbroke Grove. He invited her back to his flat for sex, Ethel being away visiting relatives at the time. After they had sex, Christie grabbed a length of rope and strangled Ruth right there in his bed. When asked later on, he said he didn't intend to kill her when he first invited her over, though I'm not too sure about that personally. Initially, Christie hid her body beneath the floorboards of his living room, but soon moved it to the backyard. Remember that thigh bone the police found in the garden holding up part of the fence? Yeah, me too. Oh my god. Like, that's some dark at the end of 1943, Christie left his job as a police constable, finding new employment as a clerk at an Acton radio factory. It was here that he met 31-year-old Muriel Amelia Eady. During the time they spent working together, Muriel developed bronchitis, giving her quite a nasty cough. Spotting this, Christie took his chance on October 7, 1944, and invited her back to his flat. He promised her that he had managed to concoct some sort of medicine that would cure her ailment and help her breathe better, and all she had to do was inhale the mixture from a jar with a tube inserted in the top. Dude, this is fucked up. What are you doing, like, running crazy experiments, murderous experiments on people? What's wrong with you? She did so, and when she wasn't looking, Christie connected the jar to another tube to a gas tap. Breathing the gas in and out, Muriel soon lost consciousness, and Christie got to work. He raped her while she was unconscious, and when he was done, he strangled her and buried her in the garden next to Ruth's body. As for the third and fourth victims, we unfortunately revisit Beryl and Geraldine Evans. For months, Christie had weaseled his way into the trust of Timothy Evans, manipulating the poor broken man into confi confiding in him. So, of course, when Timothy always up the creek without a paddle, with Beryl being pregnant, he went to Christie, who, being a good friend he was, broached the idea of himself performing the abor abortion that Evans's so desperately needed. This guy's a proper psycho. Just like one of these, like, textbook, like, movie psychos. The Evanses agreed, and that's all she wrote. We don't know precisely what happened that night, but I believe that we can hazard a guess. Beryl arrived with Geraldine, much like the second victim. She was gassed, raped, and murdered by strangulation. Geraldine, less than a year old, was simply a loose end to the monster, and she too was strangled as a result. Their bodies were then wrapped up in a blanket and a tablecloth and hidden in the shed in the garden for later disposal, uh, where they were found by the police. Christie was questioned, and his accounts were taken as fact by the police. Despite his background as a criminal, he was seen as an upstanding member of society and was treated as an important witness in the case. The inconsistencies with Timothy's confessions were brushed off. The damning evidence of the bone in the garden was glossed over, and in the end, it was Christie's testimony paired with the childish investigation and slapstick police work that sent Timothy Evans to the noose. A tragedy, a travesty, a complete and utter injustice. The messed up part about it? The police were literally trampling over the burial site 
a Ruth and Muriel during the whole search, and Christie later admitted that his dog had dug up Muriel's skull in the garden shortly after the cops had finished their searches, to which he threw the skull into an abandoned, bombed-out house in nearby St. Mark's Road. One day, it seemed that Christie had finally grown more than tired of his wife. Ethel Christie, age 54, became Arsman's fifth victim when she was murdered in bed via strangulation on the morning of December 14, 1952. It always hated women. He'd constantly been unfaithful to her from the start, and his whole murder spree started while being unfaithful to her. It's plausible that he simply got tired of playing house and got rid of the distraction. She didn't deserve to die, especially after finding it in her heart to give this piece of slime a second chance. And it didn't take long for Christy to move on and start covering up, making excuses around town as to why she seemed absent, and then going on to sell her wedding ring. Next was 25-year-old Rita Nelson, a woman from Belfast who was six months pregnant and visiting her sister in Ladbroke Grove, the, as well as 26-year-old Kathleen Malcony, a local prostitute from the Ladbroke Grove area. Both were lured to Rillington Place. Both were gassed, this time with a rubber tube connected to the gas line in the kitchen. They were raped repeatedly and then strangled to death in January and February of 1953, respectively. The eighth and final victim was Hectorina McLennan, 26. She was living with her boyfriend, Alex Baker, at the time and was out at a cafe when she met John Christie. He struck up a friendship with her and managed to befriend Alex as well, meeting up with them on several occasions. And John even I'll let the two of them stay with him in his flat while they were looking for a new place to live. On March the 6th, 1953, Christie met Hectorina alone. He persuaded her to return to his flat with him. John had become a trusted friend, so of course she thought nothing of it. And, well, it cost her her life. Over the next several days, he continued to meet with Alex, convincing the young man that he had not seen Hectorina at all for the last few days. As for the body, the garden was too small and the shed had already been searched, so he had to find another place not only for Hectorina but for Kathleen and Rita. For these final three, he placed a cloth-like material between their legs before wrapping their semi-naked bodies in blankets and stowing the bodies in a small alcove behind the back kitchen wall. Then, as if to put a final cover on all of his evil deeds, John Christie covered up the alcove with wallpaper. Eight victims, seven innocent women, one infant. All of them fell victim to a heinous and despicable man, one that stole their lives away for no other reason than his own deplorable hatred and satisfaction. However, his reign of terror was not to last forever. He had finally made a grave error, one that would come back to bite him. On March the 20th, 1953, John Christie moved out of Ten Rillington Place, leaving behind a trail of death and destruction that would soon be uncovered. If you've put bodies in, your, in an alcove in your kitchen and just boarded over that shit, when you move out, you need to remove those bodies because redecorating is a thing. People are going to be like, I don't really like the wallpaper. Let's change it. Oh my lord, there's an alcove with bodies in it. The monster unmasked. After leaving Rillington Place, Christie moved into Roten House in King's Cross, booking a room under his real name with his real address. Seems like someone forgot the casual criminalist rules with that one, but that wasn't the only rule that he'd forgotten about. That's not a rule. You could go stay somewhere under your own name and address. Like, using a fake name and address seems almost more risky at that point. Seems like he's not, he's not on the run. So what was this grave error that Christie had made after so long? Simple. He sold the flat. He had complete and total control over the crime scene, and he just left it and gave it to someone else. You see, Christie had not cleared it with the landlord, and when the landlord discovered the new couple in the flat that evening, he forced them out the next morning. Beresford Brown, the tenant in the top floor flat, was then allowed to use Christie's kitchen. It was on March the 24th that he discovered the alcove. When he peeled back the wallpaper to insert brackets for a wireless set, he was met with a smell of rotting flesh and the decaying forms of Kathleen Maloney 
Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. News broke that very same day, and the police were hot on Christie's heels. For days, he wandered about London and slept on the streets, tried to keep out of sight and out of mind of the police. He even took time to visit cafes and cinemas, as if to escape from the stress of being on the run. He's <laughs> just chill out watching a movie. Dude, you are a full psycho, my dude. If you could if you could just relax during those times, be like, no, 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 I just went to see, I want to see the latest Avengers. And you're just enjoying it? You're broken, man. You are a full psycho. On March the 31st, 1953, PC Thomas Ledger stopped a suspicious-looking man on the embankment near Putney Bridge. Ledger had heard of the discovery of the bodies in the flat at 10 Rillington Place several days prior, so he, like the rest of the police, were on edge and on the lookout for a murderer. Uh, when asked about his identity, the man refused to cooperate, so it was taken in. It didn't take long for the man to be identified. It was John Christie, who was officially arrested that same day for the murders of Kathleen, Rita, and Hectorina. When questioned by the police, it didn't take long for him to fully admit to the three murders, plus the murder of his wife, Ethel. He initially was tight-lipped about the other crimes, at least until the police dug up the back garden at Rillington Place and found the skeletal remains of his first two victims. Being informed of the discovery, Christie admitted to the murders of Ruth and Muriel as well. As far as Beryl, he played dumb for almost a month, but on April 27, 1953, he finally confessed to killing her as well. In regards to Geraldine, Christie denied killing her from arrest to trial to conviction though there were times he insinuated or outright admitted that he might have been responsible for her death. To this day, it's speculated that he played coy the whole time in order to not enrage the jury or put a target on his back from other inmates for being a child killer. The trial began on June the 22nd, 1953, with John Christie being charged solely with the murder of Ethel. In a proper twist of fate, he was tried in the exact same court that found Timothy Evans guilty years prior. Karma at its finest. Christie pleaded insanity, and even though his defense team were quoted as calling Christie mad as a March hare, the prosecution went out of their way to prove that this was no wonderland. Dr. Matheson, a doctor at H.M. Prison Brixton, evaluated Christie and took the stand for the Crown, claiming that Christie had a hysterical personality but was not insane. The jury didn't buy it either, finding him guilty after deliberating for less than an hour and a half. As for his sentence, Mr. Justice Finnamore gave the only sentence fitting for such a heinous crime, death by hanging. Yes, and this is nice, isn't it? He deserves this. After dodging the noose years prior, sending poor Timothy there in his place, John Christie would finally hang for his crimes. Christie stated that he would not appeal his conviction, and indeed it was later found by the Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, that there were no grounds for Christie to receive a reprieve from the rope. He received several visitors in lieu of his execution, including ex-army friend Dennis Haig and his sister Phyllis Clark, both of which said afterwards that Christie seemed resigned to his fate, having accepted that death was close at hand. Yeah, he's got to accept it because he's got a date with the noose. And just like that, we find ourselves in a familiar stone room, table placed in the center with two guards sitting in opposite seats facing each other. But this time, instead of Timothy Evans, we see John Christie sat in the same seat Evans had sat. And just like before, we see the door thrust open as guards rush into the room, grabbing Christie and walking him through that same door, setting him in place, noose affixed around his neck and hood placed over his face. Christie complained that his nose itched. Albert Pierrepoints, the executioner, simply looked at him and said not to worry. It wouldn't bother him much longer. At 9am on July the 15th, 1953, and over oh, the swift pull of the lever, the trapdoor opens, and John Christie, the monster of Ellington Place, age 54, died with a resounding crack, ending the life of one of the most notorious serial killers in British history. Wrap up. And with that, we come to an end. I'd be lying if I said that this didn't hurt. John Christie was a despicable man, one who donned a mask of a respectable gentleman and friends to many 
regardless of his criminal past. He was an army man. He was a police constable, all the while holding the darkness inside him until he wished to unleash it on the poor innocent women around him. And in doing so, he sent an innocent man to the gallows in his stead. But justice was served in the end, and Christie was given the punishment he deserved. His death marked the end of a long and tragic story, one that is remembered to this day. Christie might not be as infamous as some of the bigger names we've covered on this show, but his evil has left a stain on the entirety of Britain and has inspired several adaptations of the story. A play called Christie and Love premiered in 1969, focusing on his murders and psychological issues. He's also been portrayed in movies and television, namely the 1971 film Ten Rillington Place, where he was played by Richard Attenborough, Jurassic Park and Miracle on 34th Street frame and the 2016 three-part or biographical drama Rillington Place, where he was played by Tim Roth, known for his work in such films as Pulp Fiction and The Incredible Hulk. As the darkness leaves us behind yet again, I must ask us to all remember his victims. Ruth First, Muriel Eady, Beryl and Geraldine Evans, Ethel Christie, Rita Nelson, Kathleen Maloney, Hector Rena McLennan. These women didn't deserve to die. They trusted Christie, and he betrayed every single one of them. Ethel loved him and gave him another chance, and he killed her. Hectorina thought him a friend, and he killed her. Beryl believed him a kind neighbor who cared about her and her family, and not only did he kill her, he also killed her baby. In the end, there's only eight names linked to John Christie, though I don't agree. In this writer's opinion, the victim count should be nine. Yeah, yeah, Timothy Evans. Timothy had the guy who went to the to hang. Timothy Evans was fooled, tricked into trusting an evil man, and because of that, he lost his family and he lost his life. He was ostracized, convicted, and hanged, all while crying out for help, claiming innocence, all of which fell on deaf ears. He cried for the light, only for the darkness to muffle his sobs. In the end, though, the injustice was made right. Christie was put to the noose, and Timothy Evans was proven innocent. In 1966, Timothy was officially pardoned on the charges of killing his family, and in 2004, it was officially acknowledged that his execution was wrongful and was a miscarriage of justice. At last, Timothy Evans and his family could rest in peace, all while John Christie is rotting down in the depths where he belongs. And that's where we end today's episode. Thank you so much for watching, listening, however you consume this show, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.